Hello world. Hey. Hi. 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 Hello. Hello. Hi. It's like I forgot not to say hello. <laughs> Welcome to this week's episode of Life with Kaka. I'm your host and fellow producer, Carolina Gropa. This week on the show, I sat down with line producer Bobby Sue Luther. She is a one-of-a-kind, multifaceted human. She's loud, she's relentless, and she's also a dear friend. We've done two movies together, Miss Virginia, which came out this year, starring Uzu Aduba, and the upcoming romantic drama, Sylvie, starring Tessa Thompson. She's been line producing for a very long time, and if you recall from episode one, Eva Longoria gushed over Bobby. And I've been lucky enough to, when I decided to become a producer, to surround myself with amazing producers. Like Bobby was, Bobby a girl. Yeah, <laughs> but this is Bobby Sue Luther, who you will hear from on this podcast. Oh yeah, yeah. Oh so yeah. I learned Bobby is just so great, and I learned so much from her. Mm-hmm. She gets it done. And oh yeah. That's kind of like She's her a bulldog. motto: bulldog, but like doesn't have sharp edges. She's just like, great, got to do it. Let's go. Got to get it done. Just do it. Just get it done. Yeah. And, you know, and she's she was amazing to watch. It's funny how mentorship appears sometimes. You just never know who's watching what you're doing. We had a really great time recording this conversation for you guys. So give it a listen. Let me know what you think. Hit me up. Love to hear from you. Let's dig in and hear from Bobby. Are you okay there? I cut sort of. I just need it to brace against something. Well, we're sitting on the on the floor because podcast making is glamorous. Just like producing is glamorous, you know? I'll have to get a photo of this. I actually have this table, by the way. Do you? At, in New Orleans. It's one of my side tables in New Orleans. Well, How funny you, is that? There you go. So How world market of us. Slowly becoming... <laughs> Slowly becoming uh, each other. I know. (laughs) Just one pop socket at a time. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Wait, so this is your first podcast? Am I popping your podcast cherry? Well, I mean, yes. Technically, you are popping my podcast cherry. There's a lot of peas in that little presentation. It is a lot of uh, plosives here into the microphone. (laughs) Everybody loves that. Um, If you have not been able to guess, my guest on the podcast today (laughs) is Bobby Sue Luther, whom I now have known for a year and a year change Uh, yeah like a year almost to the date because miss virginia ended around this time last year yeah it was a lot longer you know know. it feels like life is going faster but it feels like i've known you longer well i think because when you spend 17 hours a day with someone like in production i think you just kind of click into this you lose track of time you know it's like you're right it's like the days are long but the years are short (laughs) yes that's true yeah yeah, because I mean, we do spend more time yeah. together than even my significant other. Yeah, probably more hours collectively together in collectively. the last, last at least six months than I have with my my husband. So, that's true. That's funny. How does that make you feel? How does it feel to be married to me? Um, it's pretty good. <laughs> Pros and cons. <laughs> <laughs> but I lean into all the pros, you know, because okay. I try I like to like that. focus on gratitude. I, I, and, can, like, I can appreciate that. <laughs> <laughs> well, so how does it feel like you're away from your family? We'll get into all of the nitty gritty of producing and all of that. But, you know, a large component of what we do as physical producers, line producers is, is, you know, being in this vortex that is production where it robs you of everything else in your life. How does that make you feel? You know, um, just like you like to lean into our our uh, marriage by convenience, <laughs> the pros of it. Um, 
you know, it's it's just what I know, I think, at this point. Um, you know, I know a lot of my friends and or family or loved ones or even just people in the periphery, they always wonder how, you know, I can function with my husband being gone. You know, he he's a DP, so uh, he travels a lot for work and he's been in Atlanta for the last six, seven months on a TV series. So, uh, and but I've been here working, you know, so for me, it's like, I don't know, it's like feels like six months was just like a month ago. It doesn't really register because I'm not sitting around the house. I'm not working a nine to five um, where I can clock in my own world. I mean, I'm I'm rarely clocked into my own world. So I just, I don't know if I know it anymore. I don't know if I know the alternative. And I think the alternative is probably a little scary, the alternative of of having something really structured. So I guess I just lean into the pros because my mind is crazy. <laughs> Do you feel like the, that structure that we perceive that people who work a nine to five seem to have is boring? I don't think the structure is boring. Um, I think it just maybe doesn't fit my personality style. I think there's times where I crave structure for sure. Uh, and I know I function well with structure, but in terms of my choice in my career path, I think that this is at least for right now, the best choice for me because of my hyperactivity in my mind. Yeah. I, I don't, I think it's hard to tame me just in general as a friend, mm. as, as a, as a colleague, as, as a, as a lover. So I'm just sort of like, I'm at there a 10. There you go. That's, I'm the, at a 10. that's the, the title of your biopic. It's Taming Bobby Sue. <laughs> taming Sue Styles. Taming, taming Luther. Taming Luther. It's perfect. Oh, amazing. So speaking of career path, tell me more how you got here. How I got to producing was really by way of doing other things in a similar profession. I started as a a model and then a TV host and then an actress. And so I started in front of the lens and gradually worked my way behind it just by kind of sheer accident. Got an opportunity, did well at it, got another opportunity, did well at that. And I realized sort of the risk and reward of being behind the lens and producing my own content was a lot greater than what I was living through at the time being in front of the camera, which was tough. You know, being an actress is is um, you're holding a number up. You're going into a room with hundreds of other wannabes and mm-hmm you're often a number, especially in commercial casting, you're literally holding up a number. Yeah. So it, um, I think at the time I was, you know, getting a little older and I was also going through some per- personal stuff, going in through a, a pretty nasty divorce. And just, I saw these two things in front of me and I, what I was faced with my next path in life. And I just, I really was gravitating towards this thing. I had a little bit more control and function over, which was producing. So I, I doubled down on that and left the other stuff behind. And I moved to New Orleans and opened up a production services company and just kind of trial by fire ended up in this career path. What is a production services company? It's really sort of like a flow through company. Mm-hmm. A lot of um, smaller markets have it, mm-hmm. you know, places like New York and LA don't really have it. But say you want to go to Louisiana and get a um, a tax incentive. A lot of times there's people parked down there to help you sort of facilitate that. So if you're a producer from Vancouver and you want to go and make a movie in Louisiana because there's a tax incentive, you they hire you often as like right. a, a line producer, and you have manager. to use the pass through company, so to speak, to get the tax credit. Or not no? necessarily. Some places you do. Canada, you do have to use. Mm. You, there has to be a Canadian producer. So often they 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 end up working with somebody like a line producer up there that they can attach to the project. Yeah. Um, in Louisiana, you don't. But it just you know if you got to hire somebody, might as well hire somebody who's done that a lot down there. And you know at the time it was sort of you know newer and fresher. It was you know, 10, 12 years ago now. So, you know, it was a different time where there wasn't a lot of people that had done done it a bunch of times. There hadn't been a 
a ton of TV shows flowing. Through yeah. There. So production services company. Mm-hmm. And how long did you do that before you moved back to LA and started producing? About a year I was down in New Orleans, maybe a little bit more than that. And then I got an opportunity to um, uh, be an executive at a company called Smokewood. Mm. We had just finished Precious at the time and we're in post on Precious and we're starting a new film. So can you talk a little bit about what it means to be an executive with what you were doing at a company like that and just the differences of how what the differences between that and then the other types of producing that? others may be more familiar with? Sure. I mean, being an executive is just really overseeing everything. And because the company was an independent film company, I was doing all of it. So again, another trial by fire lesson where I just sort of inserted myself and learned on a bigger scale than what I had done before. We were going into production on a film called Judy Moody and the Not Bomber Summer. So we were just fig- finishing, um, you know, getting the book rights and, you know, finishing the polish on the script and you know, different versions of the script and then kind of pulling it all together I was then applying for the California tax incentive. So I'm sort of the person that's facilitating everybody until until we bring on the entire production team. And then yeah. once the entire production team was on, I oversaw all of that. I mean, I put everything together from the marketing plan to the branded strategy and the the branded content. Um, I oversaw like we, we won like an award from the Producers Guild for being like the most green set. So everything from still hiring and firing to, you know, some of the bigger bigger picture stuff. But you were not you were not the day-to-day on the ground producer in a traditional more UPM role on that project. Sort of was, but we'll leave that off camera for now. <laughs> okay. Well, I'm just trying <laughs> to off, for off for mic. our for our listeners sure. well, sort like, of explain the differences between the context of how I know you, which is more as a physical producer and what you were doing as an executive is a lot more macro. I think you know, truth be told, I don't know that it differs much, at least in the role that I facilitated for the company. I did all the same things. Um, I think if you are, say, at a Paramount, your goal is to bring in content, make sure it's happening, um, and delegate it to other people to make sure that that child is going off to school, so Mm. to speak. So it's much more in a wider path. But because it was a smaller company, we were only focusing on that film at the time and then like finishing up a documentary and then, you know, sort of licensing another book. So it was doubled down. I was overseeing all of that. And that's really where I got my sort of teeth wet on a bigger scale. Um, did we have more people than I normally have? Yeah, absolutely. Did we hire specifically a line producer? Yes. Did I still do the job? Yes. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, yes. The secrets, the dirty secrets of our industry. Um, but I think, you know, in a in a bigger company, your goal is to really sort of it's it's more it's mass production yeah. as opposed to specific production. So what made you go from this structured job of being an employee in house to leaving it all behind and going freelance? It wasn't my co- my call at all. I <laughs> it mean, wasn't the, your call. The uh, the uh, principal of the company is she just sort of wanted to take a break. Mm. And she was like, you know, I think I just kind of want to go travel and enjoy my life a little bit. And not be in production Nothing and wrong so with that. there I was to uh to dust myself off and try something new again which was you know at the time fine then it became scary and then it, it was an easy transition after a few years of really hunkering down and talk about talk about the scary the scary, is, scary you know anything new is scary yeah. and um you know a lot of times you you hear this this term in our business feast and famine mm. feast or famine or you know there's different versions of it but it's like that, you know, you're constantly either way too busy or not busy enough. Yeah. And I think with that transition, I wasn't sure where I wanted to go. I think I was really focusing on creative producing at the time. 
And then I realized I really liked the physical production. I mean, the creative producing is scary because you find you take forever to find content that you like or license a book that you love or find that book that you love and then fight for the rights and then take it and pedal it all over town looking for somebody and begging for somebody to finance it. And the risk reward and or the 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 rate of, of completion of that is really low. Yeah. I mean, it's really hard to ask somebody, hey, I need $10 million for this like random ass book. Like, can you can you help me do yeah, that? Yeah, and I, I don't mean, have a famous last name. And I don't have a famous it. last yeah. name. Oh, and by the way, like your return on investment for making a film is like really, really difficult. If you ever, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, if you break would, even, if it's a miracle. Yeah, yeah. You have a brain, you got a million bucks. So let me talk to you about Los Angeles real estate. I mean, like that's the real of it. So I think after a while of doing that and being let down, I realized I really was more of a function producer. I really like hiring and firing. I really like putting it together. I also like getting a check for the weeks that I work, which you it, there is nothing like that when you're putting together your own project. Oh, one thing to mention here, one one of the biggest misconceptions that I know of uh, about and through my interviews is this idea that if you're the lead producer on something or if you're a producer, you're making all this money. And especially when you're an independent producer who's trying to creatively develop something, oftentimes you're not making any money. And Anything. even if you get that $10 million and you get your fee, let's say it's $100,000. That's you're probably not insane. yourself. <laughs> which is insane. Let's say you get $100,000. It sounds yeah. like a lot, right? You're like, wow, to make one movie? Sure, but you at that point have been working for five years, probably, right? And you have two more years before. So for seven years of work, you're getting $100,000. You cannot quantify the the monetary sort of assessment of the time you've put into it. So the difference between that approach versus you are the physical producer on this show, you're on for three months, every week you get paid this amount of money, and then you walk away, yep. reset, start the next project. Yep. It's a lot more tangible. Yep. A hundred percent. And I think that tangibility in life is something I strive for, which going back to the risk and reward and why I left in front of the camera, it's, I liked having something that's tangible. I like that risk and reward, being able to quantify it. And I still have my own projects where I'm, you know, I've found something, I'm fighting for something, I'm peddling that something. But for me, I need to have my baseline and my baseline is safety. And without me feeling safe, I'm not good in life, at life. So <laughs> what little safety we can provide ourselves in this business because of the risk reward, because of the face and famine, you know, I've chosen this path and this path actually suits my personality style quite well. And this path being line producing and physical yeah. producing. Will you define what that is? Line producing, physical producing? Mm-hmm. Uh, I think it's just much more hands-on in the nuances and the, the, the micro of it all. You know, I rarely, as a line producer, I'm involved in... Um, building the finance, though it's not uncommon for me to get involved in that. It's not what I get hired to do. Um, you know, I say I, it's not what I often do, but sometimes do because you usually get involved very early on and they become trustworthy of you. And so then they approach you about mm. that, uh, that being financing. But really your hired function is to assemble, uh, disassemble, manage the finances, manage how this thing that is asked for gets complete, completed and, right. and you know, introduced into the fold. I like to look at my job and even, you know, like other jobs within this industry as building a house. I'm not the um, financier. I'm not the developer. Okay. I'm not the architect. I'm not the de- interior designer. I am the general contractor though. And typically line producers are sort of 
at play at the height of principal photography. You know, you're brought on <clears throat> to prep a project once it's been greenlit and you prep that show, you oversee all of physical production. Sometimes there's a wrap period and sometimes you're on, there's a little bit of crossover right between uh, ending principal photography and editorial and post. Sure. Oftentimes there's a post supervisor, which is a type of a producer who comes on to literally supervise all of posts and vendors and which make is a sure. very slow process. It's very slow. So it's not for Bobby Sue. If you know her, she would, <laughs> I've not, done it though. She would wither and die in that environment. <laughs> she needs fire in her life. Um, one of my goals with this podcast is to, um, Try to define from your perspective all of the different types of producers that exist and where they differ, if if anything. So we talked a little bit about what an executive sort of producer means in a, the context of a small production company, a line producer, UPM combo, which is very typical in our world of indie movie making. But will you define what a capital P producer means, what it means to be a producer? Well, of course, my perspective is going to differ from many, and it's like any contract, no two contracts ever in life are the same, you know, so I think that there's never any true function, you know, that every producer will absolutely do. It's always unique to that project and or that company, or I think that if you're a producer at a at a studio, it differs greatly from if you're a producer in an indie world, but my definition of a capital P producer is somebody that, you know, it comes in either at the very beginning or, you know, in its inception and in some in its infancy, the project's infancy, and really sees that project through and has a major contribution to it. Major, you know, so that's either pulling it out of obscurity and finding that book and then finding a writer to add up the, that book and then getting it, the financing and pushing it through and then finding the director and the lead cast and and making sure that that project gets made. It can also mean somebody stepping in a little bit throughout that process mm -hmm. because that first principal P capital P producer can't, it can only, their bandwidth can only go so right. far either. They don't know cast or uh, they're faltering at finding a great writer or, or seeing it through the writing process. So I think that, that often some contributors come in a little bit midway through the project and that's mm -hmm. fine too because their skill set and their strengths are going to offset the other person's skills and strengths so there's never really a benchmark of when they start or when they end but there's some sort of major or multiple major contributions that somebody makes to something to basically build that child up that child mm -hmm. being the project seeing it through and getting it to college <laughs> and then having it be a big time lawyer so um you know not just you know it's not just the OBGYN that helps you pull it right. up. Right. <laughs> or in the case of a lot of indie movies, uh, they end up just becoming like a crack whore somewhere. Yeah, exactly. And never see. <laughs> it just never comes out of the, the hovel. Well-intentioned. It's a boarded up house and you never see them again. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Well-intentioned for sure. For sure. Uh, I think that alternatively, people that often come in just for the financing function of mm -hmm. it, those are generally like executive producers. Right. So they help oversee some sort of business, major business aspect or major business attribution to it. Help it get distributed, help bring in financing, help get the structure of it pulled together, but aren't really seeing through the creative, the day-to-day -day and putting forth some major contribution to to build that, that project up. How do you feel that nowadays having so many producers on any given film specifically, because television is a whole other beast, how do you feel like that affects 
your job or impacts the perception of what you do, or perhaps dilutes the producer role? Um, I'm not sure that I care. Uh, I think that I love giving away credit as currency. And I think that often currency is the thing that independent films lack. And if people need to give that currency away, I don't, I know what my form and function is. I don't think it dilutes me. And also, I mean, again, there's usually only one line producer, you know, so there might be a billion producers or a billion executive producers, but there's usually only one line producer. Maybe two, right? Maybe, but on Game of Thrones, yeah, exactly. (laughs) So, you know, even if there's a line producer and a UPM, again, there's functions that people service. So, I'd say, hey, you know, if that's what the principals want, then that's what the principals get. Because rarely is there too many voices in the room, you Mm. know, especially when it comes to the job that I have to do and the answers I need to get. So, rarely, even if there is 15 producers in credit. Rarely are all 15 of them chiming in on the answers that I specifically need. So it doesn't, at least not yet, has not altered my ability to get my job done. Because most people don't want to get involved with the answers that I need. You know, it's it's way too uh, complex for people who want to worry about like how a delivery was on camera or if whether or not they're getting a credit because they found $10,000 to put towards a project. So, you know, from my point of view, more power to it. I don't think it dilutes people's you know, credit. And I certainly don't think it hurts my job. Well, but you know, there's this idea that when you ask, uh, like the PGA, right, to get the PGA's mark, they call around and they say, well, who was actually the producer that would be worthy of the produced by credit? And it usually comes in the form of who was the crew interfacing with every day? Who was there solving the problems, the day-to-day problems of physical production? As it should be. As it should be, right? Yeah, so There usually is only three people that do that. Exactly. You know, like, <laughs> exactly. But I think people from the outside can look at a, you know film credits rolling and they see 15 producers and you're like, what, what the heck did all these people do? I think the people from the outside don't even look at the credits. That's and true. And that's the sad part. It's just our, it's our own inter-community that yeah. does. And, and if they're judging, then... Who are they to judge? Right. You know, because they all know it's all bullshit. Right. And, and, you know, like, seriously. So I think, I mean, to me, it doesn't dilute it. And if it does in somebody's eyes, then it's none of their business because you're either doing what you want to do in life or you're not. Yeah. And it's up to you to sort of make that decision whether or not you want to be one of 15 or if you want to be one of one. If so, then you need to work a lot harder. Yeah. To not need the other 15 for mm. whatever reason you needed the other 15. Right. <laughs> what are some of the, the misconceptions you feel like people have about producers and about what you do? Well, funny enough, I think, and this is actually, I think, broad uh, with most people in our industry. I think the biggest misconception, what I do usually is painted more towards like my family. Mm. I still have no idea what it is oh, yeah, that I same. do. Like my, the other day, my mom was like, uh, so when, where can I watch the movie that you did in DC, the other, which was our movie, yeah, Miss Virginia. Virginia. <laughs> and I'm like, mom, it, you know, this, these, these things take years to come out. Like, yeah. you know, we just locked picture on that maybe six months ago, you know? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so there's a lifeline of films that are quite long. And I think that even after, you know, 20 years in this industry, n- people still don't, that are close to me still don't quite grasp what that is, that length of time. I think another big misconception is that producers make a ton of money. You know, I think you touched on that earlier, Um, especially creative producers. They have to wait years to get, you know, finances back. Or even if you have a fee built in, you know, to a Netflix film, they're probably not getting that payout until they've gotten all of their 
their some of their return back and maybe even like their tax credits back. So, yeah. you know, just because you've got a credit and just because you may have a fee doesn't mean that you're getting uh, a weekly paycheck. So right. I think feast and famine is, is quite relevant when it comes to a lot of producers. Same thing with directors, actually. You're, you're waiting around between projects quite a bit. Yeah. Um, I think ease. You know, I, um, mm. I mean, I, even with dealing, most, most I think crew members respect me and what I do and they see how hard that say I or we work. But, you know, I think that there's a, maybe a misconception of laziness when often, you know, my hours are longer than anybody else on production. Right. I'm, I'm going to sleep at 7am and I'm waking up at nine to do or 830 to do accounting stuff. So I think, you know, and that's AM, like an hour and a half sleep. <laughs> <laughs> and that's common. And that's part of our job. You know, that's yeah. that the risk and reward has to balance out because somebody has to has to flow through somebody. Yeah. So I'm I'm often not getting what's called a turnaround like most crew is. Also, I'm not a physical person like, you know, I say a grip is. So I think that turnaround is relevant because they are scaling rafters and it's important that they get their sleep. No one cares if a producer gets to sleep. Right. And that's okay. I don't need them to care. So I've I've decided to take this on myself. So I think that those are some of the misconceptions. Um, maybe how much we're working, how many projects we might have on at any given time. Um, that the conception is that we're doing more than we're doing that we're not doing as much mm, that yeah. we're not doing enough because it's you know a lot of yeah. what we do is very quiet you know it's behind the scenes it's signing checks it's it's interfacing with contract it's uh and then you know what people do see is that we're interfacing on set and we're handling things on set but there's a whole other world that's probably three quarters of what we do that's yeah. not the interfacing on set in front of people well and it's like for a social as production has to be right where you're interfacing with crew and department heads every day and you're around 100 people and taking on all of that emotional dump so much of producing is this place of solitude where you really are alone especially most projects do have a upm lp combo and i know we just we just came off a feature called sylvie together where we both got to have this really rare experience of sharing the responsibilities where Bobby was a line producer and I got to be the UPM and it was a very different world to have that. So in that way, it wasn't, it didn't feel as solitary, Yeah, but it, normally it is, you know, you're in this back of this trailer at three in the morning, like trying to stay awake because you're <laughs> shooting an overnight and you're just kind of running you, analytics, <laughs> you know, and at three in the morning from a the accounting is closed, businesses are closed. So there's really not much for you to do, right? There's like all this other stuff you can be doing, but you still need to be there. You need to be there and you have to stay sort of mentally engaged at all times because at any moment something could go wrong yeah. and you have to problem solve and you can't be like, you know, napping in, in the moho or whatever. You have to be like mm -hmm. on your toes, ready for anything that's going to come your way. So, you know, I think that it is, it can be this very, well, it, it is when you're not on physical production, I think as an independent, as a freelancer specifically, it is a very... Uh, I don't want to say a lonely life because that sounds really sad, but just a very well, singular experience. There, the term is it's lonely at the top. Yes. And it is, you know, yes. it, it can be. And that's that's with any sort of upper management position, which is right. what line producing is. Yeah. So, you know, the, 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 a CEO or a CFO, which is probably more relevant to this position, another another mm -hmm. sort of like ladder lateral, um, you know, a, a general contractor, a CFO. That's mm -hmm. kind of what a line producer is. Yeah it's pretty solitary, you know, you're not, it's, it's not about being in the cubicle and, 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 and planning right with, with the rest of the team. It's about overseeing the team. Right. And so, you know, there's a lot of gratitude that I get and, and doing the job and, and collaboration, but it, you know, 
it goes hand in hand with the solitude. Yeah, I think you straddle the line very well between being a boss and also being, you know, someone who can be friendly and social with your team mm. and straddle both those lines. I know, <laughs> I know some, you know, some other producers won't go out to drinks with their coworkers. They won't go out and do social things with the people that, you know, are underneath them, so to speak, that they're overseeing because it creates a dynamic that can be really hard to navigate, right? When you're in that position of liter- leadership, but then you're getting wasted doing tequila shots with your PAs. It's like, well, it can, it can, I don't know. It's just a, people have different ideas about this. So I'm curious, have you always been that way or did you struggle to find that balance? I'm a social person. And yeah. and I always say, and I've said this to you before, I find that most of my job is far more psychology-based than mm-hmm. it is function-based. I either can walk into a room and read a room and read people what they need or I can't. And I think that's what makes me good at my job. And yeah. I think that makes what most people good at their job, especially in this where you're managing upwards of 100 to maybe even 150 people at a time, plus finances, plus, 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 mm-hmm. you know, you're either going to be an asshole and cut off and and that's the way you deal with things or you, I hate to say the word manipulate because I'm not a manipulator, but you find a way, management is a, a manipulation tool. Mm-hmm. That says in any, any job, right. you, you find a way to manipulate a room in favor of the people that need it or for yourself. You know, so I think manipulation can go both ways. I don't mean to say it sounds negative about right, it. Right, right. Um, you help coax the 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 direction you need the job and or the task to go in. Right. <laughs> By managing people. Uh, in terms of, you know, look, our job in the entertainment industry is a social job. We have parties to end to to denote the end of a project. I mean, our project's lifelines are pretty short. You know, yeah. constantly like giving gifts and having parties about rap party. You know, I'm, I'm like referring just, to rap parties. We just worked together for 30 days. Yeah, we Here's just worked together for 30 days. We need to have a big blowout party. Yeah. So it's a really unique profession yeah. in that way where you're having big blowout parties with your colleagues somewhere between three and five times a year. You yeah. know, for some people, maybe even more if you're like a grip and you're just, your lifeline is a lot shorter. So um, I think it's encouraged to be social in our in our job and, you know, both as a line producer but even just in the entertainment industry, yeah. it is a social industry. You've got things built around socializing, like being a member at the Soho House, right. you know, which is a an exclusive members sort of guided towards entertainment industry things where you're meant to pay a monthly, you know, country club-esque fee to right. go socialize. So our industry is built around socialization. I, I don't look at it as there is no HR. Right. While there is a <laughs> definition of it, and it's certainly if you work at a, a studio environment, there's probably somebody who is. Mm-hmm. And our job as line producers is to help oversee that HR yeah. you know, as production. It's still, there is no standards and practices in terms of like, no one is meant to socialize out of work. No one's meant to date. And you know, there's a lot of interdating in our industry too. Yeah. Um, you know, I'm married to a DP. So, yeah. <laughs> and you know, I mean, a lot of people meet their partners, the significant others at work. It's just that we, I mean, our environment working are 17 so... hours a day and you have no other life. Yeah. That's probably where you're meeting your social circle, you know, both for love and relationship exactly. as well as friendship you know, and your next job. So, which is why I think the whole Me Too thing brings up an interesting point because of course there are lines that should never be crossed, but there is this element of there is so much time spent with the same people. I I can't speak for 
offices and studios where it's a different ball game, but from our world on set and set life, you're, you're just in it, in the trenches with people for so long that that does start to happen. Right. And if a guy is hitting on you, it's always about the perception. Well, if I'm into it and I like the guy, then maybe it's okay. But if I'm not into it and he's obnoxious, then is that crossing the line that in a different work environment, you maybe would take it to HR. Yeah. You know, and absolutely. we don't, and we just have to be like, that guy's annoying. Let's, you know. It's a very vague industry in yeah. so many more ways than there that are applicable to me. Um, and certainly, again, you know, bringing up Me Too movement, it's, there's a, it's it's a hard thing to touch on, you know, but it's yeah. definitely that the term Me Too is applicable towards so many different thought patterns, whether it's, um, you know, women getting hired or women being taken advantage right. of or, you know, and, 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 I, and we talked a lot about this on our set and this idea that, you know, the lack of respect and the, the treatment that some men have towards women while someone isn't, you know, I don't know, Weinsteining you, like you're still being treated to be felt like less than at all times. And you have to fight that. And I think women tend to have to overcompensate with their masculine energy just to stay afloat and show the men that you're not inferior to that, that you're not going to be, they're not going to affect you that way. You know, we talked a lot about like, is somebody who just is very touchy when they speak, like, is that is that a line that shouldn't be crossed? And we we did actually, it's interesting because a lot of the male friends that we have on shows who are our age or even older, those men never touch you. They never really- And they're friends. And they're friends. They never touch you, even if they're joking with you. Like maybe you get an awkward side hug once in a while when they bring you coffee. <laughs> but you don't, you know what I mean? You're not getting like just unsolicited touches to your knee to bring up the- do we do this thing that we needed to submit by this date? Like little things. And it's like, well, is that harassment? No, I don't think it's harassment in the traditional sense. I would never compare it to what some other women have experienced, but is it crossing the line? But what is the, what is the intention, right? Is the intention behind that? And that's the thing that's interesting. And what's difficult is that even us being upper management, women in power, sometimes in those situations, there's nothing you can do. There's no one you can go to. You just kind of have yeah, to let it. Because you are HR. Because you are HR. You have to yeah. let it ride it out and you have to keep the, the ship moving forward and focus on the bigger problems yeah. because there are much bigger things so you don't hit the fucking iceberg. 27, you know? 26, 25 Exactly. Days. <laughs> you have a countdown of the amount of days until like, okay, this isn't an issue. But I digress. One of the things I wanted to bring up, you were saying that was really interesting. Um, now I lost my train of thought. Please pardon this interruption as Carolina finds her train of thought and Bobby pees. <laughs> okay, we're back with Bobby Sue Luther, who just finished her pee. Um, <laughs> so the question is, uh, we were talking about how this is such a social job, social environment. And one of the things I find so fascinating about production specifically is we're constantly hiring new people, right? We never look at someone's resume. Rarely. For department heads, yes, of course, there's a whole separate care. But I'm talking about PAs and grips. Rarely, if it's coming from someone that they trust that's in their department, no one cares. There's no background checks. Like, we don't worry about any of that shit. There's just this assumption that this person is a good human. If they have a criminal record, they've handled their shit, and here they are. (laughs) And we're all just going to work together to make that happen. And I actually find that 
incredible because I actually have worked a little bit with this nonprofit where the whole goal of it is to integrate people who have experienced either homelessness or have been imprisoned back into society. Mm -hmm. But with film and production specifically, it's like if one person vouches for you, it's kind of all you need. Mm. You know, there's so much value in how who you're going to be in the workplace. I kind of disagree because on the positions you need it to matter the most, often it is doubled down on their resume. Yeah. You know, so things like a DP or a production designer or, you know, people in my position, I often think that their resume does get them the job and their personality doesn't. Mm. You know, I like to say, at least when I hire, I the resume gets you to the room and your personality gets you the job. I sort of if you're if you were good enough in my or my team's opinion to get into the room, you clearly were like qualified enough to handle the shit we're about to throw at you. But then I want to see, do I want to live with this person for the next four to six months of my life? Because that's really where it boils down to. Um, do I trust this person enough to do that? I often work walk into a position where some of those keys have already been determined mm-hmm. without my input, and then I'm stuck with it. Yeah, and because I've been very vocal in the past of when I step into a project, I'm like, this person's going to take a shit all over this project, and they're not going to be good. And they, you, you, they still stick with them anyways. Why? Because they have a resume, and their resume sp- supposedly speaks yeah. for themselves. And you know what? Generally, nine times out of ten, I'm correct. Our jobs are, and no matter if you're the first or the last on the crew list, it's very collaborative. A lot of younger people coming up underneath me will talk about being so gung-ho on working so hard and getting the skill sets and being really good at what they do. And of course, that's important. But I always say to them, like, you can learn all of that. All of that can be learned. But what you can't learn is how to be a good, decent human, how to deal with the psychology, the emotional aspects of making a movie, because it is an inherently extremely emotional process. Everybody's operating at their highest highs, their lowest lows. They're overworked. They're not eating well. They're not sleeping. So who are you going to be in those moments? Like I've met a lot of people who are very buttoned up and can do all of the things, but they're like terrible to be around. I don't know. People with varying attitudes gravitate towards it, right? It it definitely is a society in Los Angeles that embraces like egotistical behaviors. Um, It's very um, self-gratifying. There's a lot of things that feed into bad behavior. A lot of us are a bunch of misfits. You know, we come from different walks of life, different places in the world. You know, it's not a trade, not for many people. Some, there's still a lot of people that are like, my dad was a grip and I was a grip. My grandpa was a grip. But for most of us, we found our way here through trial and error and through misfittery. And, you know, we're bit, literally a bunch of gypsies and misfits. I mean, yeah. who else jumps on a plane three days notice and goes off to China to do a movie? Like people, it's not normal. And and that's okay. But I think this profession and anything in the entertainment industry brings a certain aspect. You know, we didn't say, I want to be a preacher or a teacher. Right. They, they We say, like, I, I want to go run off to Hollywood and make movies. Right. It's a so, little bit of cray. It's a it's little a, bit. Just of- a tiny bit. We gravitate towards that. And so with that comes people that fit into all sorts of slots, um, highly emotional, highly creative, highly egotistical, highly um, comforting, high, like all pluses and minuses mm-hmm. were woven into that. We were not we were not all built to just go and be teachers of, of first grade. But none of us chose that path. Right. Other than maybe the studio teachers. The but studio even they're, they're a little bit of a misfit. They're like, oh, fuck yeah. school. I'm going to go hang out on, on, on sets <laughs> on all day sets long and snacks. oversee kids. You know? yeah. <laughs> so, That's right. Um, but so, you know, yeah. I, I think that 
you have to sort of take it all with a a grain of salt and understand who we all are first. Again, going back to the psychology Mm -hmm. of it. uh, Who are these 150 people that I have to look at each day? Who are they? What's their genetic makeup? What makes them up? Why are they here? Mm. And then once you realize that, then you can sort of patchwork your way into making it all work together. And sometimes you fail at it too. Yeah. I mean, he said you brought up manipulation earlier. And to me, it's like, it's a big puzzle. Every production is a new set of pieces, right? Mm-hmm. And you have different personalities and you're like, oh, trying to fit this puzzle over here, this yep. piece here. And you're like, it doesn't quite fit there. It looked like it did. You know, the colors were the same. But no, it's actually over there. So it's like, to me, manipulation has this undertone of a Negativity. goal. A, well, a goal that is selfish. Nefarious. And nefarious. But we're always trying to corral everybody to yeah. be on the same page. I actually mean it in a very positive way. Yeah. Like, like you're... you're when you're brushing your hair into a ponytail, you're manipulating all of those hairs into one direction. Yes. <laughs> you know? So <laughs> Yes, but I'm saying I think that they're one of the biggest skill sets as a producer is learning how to speak the language that is going to communicate what you want and need to that person. What works with person A does not work with person B. Every project is is a different child. Yeah. And those childs all have different needs. Some of them have special needs. Them, <laughs> you know, it's they're yeah. they're all they're all so drastically different. And so it's like you you close that one door and you open up a new one and you walk into a room and you have to learn how to read it right away. And yeah. it's that's goes in again this I always say my my ability to psychoanalyze the people that I need to work around to understand how do how do I speak on their behalf often to get us all to the same goal, mm. you know, yeah. without spoon feeding, you know. So right. it's 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 collaboration, it's communication, you know, and and those two things are the biggest probably components to my job. I think the psychology has to work for yourself too. I'm really good at helping myself get through these really weird times. These these um, times of independence and isolation, what we mm. referred to earlier, um, because without that, then you're going to go, they're going to go crazy. So what which do you sometimes do? What do you do? And you're well, I mean, that I'm talking about more of like in work and in life, like I'm just a mess. I'm <laughs> <laughs> well, no, here there's two parts to this that I want to yeah. touch on. The first is that there is very little time when you're in production for self care, yes, and for resetting and releasing all of the things that are getting dumped on you yes every day yeah so given that how do you find a way to do the little bit of self-care you can to keep going to show up to keep pushing through even when someone is a total jerk isn't worthy of your patience and collaboration how do you deal with all of that so i think the answer is sometimes i don't Okay. And I think that there's no right or wrong answer because everybody kind of, sometimes I don't even know how I deal with it. So there's two parts of my life. There's the professional Bobby and then there's the personal Bobby. The professional Bobby, for the most part, has got her shit together. You know, I I can handle these really, I'm the best in high stress, 1000%. Dump more on me, I'll function really efficiently. In quiet times, personally, I lose my fucking mind. Okay. And so I try to, you know, take on too much sometimes. And so in my personal life, I'm I'm trying to figure out what works for me. And I don't know that I have an answer yet. I'm married. I'm happily married. I love my husband. So that's great. So that's taken care of. But, you know, how is my self-care? That's not self-care. Uh, I mean, I work out like many of us do, and I love that. And I'm a better human. And when I do work out, I handle stress better, you know, the endorphins. I When I don't feel fat, I feel better, like I'm more confident. <laughs> 
But I still don't have not I haven't mapped that out. And I think that my age is helping me back into it a little bit because the older I get, the more tired I am. So I think during the last couple of projects, I've actually found a way to lay on the couch on the weekends versus maybe two years ago, I didn't. I would go hike and then I'd go climb something and then I'd go write a book. And then like, you know, I don't know. I did like, there was always something, you know, chaotic filling that time because I think that the quiet times are the times where you let the negative thoughts creep in. Mm -hmm. And so I'm just starting to figure it out. And I don't know that I've got the answer for it because even the other day is like the first rap day, I was like, I, I said something like, I allowed the door to creep open just an inch. And all of a sudden it was like, oh my God, all these things, what's next? Da, da, da. Like I was like, barely mm-hmm. through and I to like shut the door. Um, you know, I'm, I'm taking a trip for the first time with a big trip for the first time with yeah. my husband. We're taking the month of April off. These are little things that are like monumental for me that I've never done before. I've never yeah. told my agents, I am off the grid for a month, period, not even bringing my computer. And I think that just comes with confidence. And you know, if after doing 15 projects successfully, you can't look at yourself and go, I know I'll be able to start the next one successfully, then you've got to do a little extra work, you know, because that's what it is. It's all insecurity. You yeah. Know? And insecurity brings about negative thoughts. And I don't know that I have the answer for all that. I know that when I'm working and I'm at a, at a 10 all day, every day, seven days a week, it's exhausting, but I can handle it. But when I'm at a one personally, it's like a fucking cyclone going through my head. Mm-hmm. So I'm trying to find a five. I haven't found it yet. Mm-hmm. I bounced back and forth between an eight and a seven and a two and a three. But, you know, the, the five is not there yet. Yeah. And maybe you never get to the maybe five. Maybe I never get to that. The, that's which the point is why of I live life. well at a 10. You yeah. know? But it's a constant negotiation, inter-negotiation of um, not letting the work life depreciate the personal life. Do you feel that your professional identity defines your personal identity? I think so a little bit. And that's my own baggage. Mm-hmm. You know, I think that work has always defined me. I've always defined myself as work. Because what that, would you be without it? I don't know. Because of the fact that I'm working seven days a week, 17 hours a day, it is the definition of me. But from a mathematical standpoint, <laughs> it is who I am. Yeah. So it's hard to separate yourself at times. And I find a great deal of pride too. Although I know it's unhealthy, I need to find balance. And what's that's what I'm trying to do now. I will survive. I will eventually find another job. But that's taken years for me to say that Mm -hmm. out loud and like comfortably just like blurt it out and actually believe it. When we're in those funks of not working and all this insecurities creep up and so much of our identity can be defined by what we're doing, how much we're doing and what are you doing? And, you know, you finish a project two weeks ago. It doesn't matter. Like, what are you on to next? Like, like I haven't even been able to catch my breath. Everybody's already like, what are you working on next? It's like my sanity. How about yeah. like, rest? How my about, health? Like, I'm like, actually going to shower for the yeah, first time in a week. I'm going like, to like get a haircut. I'm going to do life things yeah, that I need like, to I'm do. I'm going to go see the dentist. Yeah. Because I'm an adult. That's and what I I'm working on. You know, <laughs> this industry places so much, you know, you're only so as good as the last thing you did. And I think that's part of why more and more and more, we got to do more and more to feel relevant, to feel I also like we think, exist. And it's a funny thing. I realized that on this last project, so many people who ask us that are, and I don't want to say under because nobody's under me, but they're dependent on us working. Mm. So they're interested to know what we're working on next because we are a lifeline to them of what they might do next. I think they mean anything but buy it, but we get like, 
like yeah. kind of triggered by I don't it. know I don't know leave me alone like <laughs> I don't want to hide <laughs> you know you go into panic crisis mode thinking feast or famine there'll never be yeah. another never job gonna work no again. one's ever gonna hire you again <laughs> am I have I ever done anything correctly this whole time like you go into the whole imposter syndrome which is a whole other thing I think that a lot of women experience you like taking the month going to go have time reconnect with your husband and do that all of that because I think it matters and like you said it feeds into who you are. It's like this cycle. It feeds into then who professional Bobby is. Because if all these other things are happening and they're being taken care of, you're going to show up on sets a better version of you. Yeah. And you're going to be able to do your job better. There is this idea of extremes. And so I think for people like you and I, it's constantly about if there is this cycle that is happening and it, maybe it's like a pendulum almost, mm-hmm. can you ever live in the in-between and maybe you get to just graze it once yeah. in a while and then you graze it back and maybe that's life. I don't know. I think that maybe that's, <laughs> that is the answer is like, yeah. you know, just as long as the pendulum is moving, you Correct. know, it's yeah. like, it's like not stationary in one side of things. That's a bummer. I'm trying to learn those skill sets. I, you know, I don't know if it's age. I don't know if it's experience. I don't know if it's tiredness. I don't know. Like, so funny. I like, you know, I lost my dog who's like the love of my life in October. and. It was I was in such an extreme place mentally at that time because I thought all this stuff was happening. But then when I lost her, I was like, no, this is real. And it was almost like her her death snapped me into like understanding feeling and extremes a little bit better. And I feel like I've handled extremes since then a little bit better because it was like, no, that is real. That is a real feeling. And I know it's just a dog, but she was my child. So whatever. <laughs> um, but, you know, it's, 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 again, it's just life experience. It's age. It's just living through. It's maturity. It's, yeah, it's maturity. Yeah. It's, it's, it's more, more happening and you understanding what that is, the pluses right. and the negatives. Coming off of a bad job and understanding it's probably the best job you could have ever had because it taught you more than an easy job. Right. You know, I love an easy job, but the harder the job, the more it teaches me. Right. That's and where the growth is, right? Absolutely. Yeah. And, you know, there's definitely a difficult job that I came off of at the end of this past year. And I got to say, like, that taught me a ton. It taught yeah. me a ton. So while I hated it and I didn't want to be a part of it anymore, you know, finishing it out and seeing it through and embracing all of the stuff that I was unhappy with and under- and understanding what it was and mm-hmm. who was causing it made me realize more about my perception as a yeah. human and my perception as a producer. So. With all the challenges, what do you love about it? Um, I think I like the challenges. I think mm. I like ha- somebody not thinking something can be done and you be finding a way to do it. I think that that's really cool. Yeah. It's an engineering brain of sorts. You yeah. know, I think it's like coming up with something so preposterous to happen and to get from A to Z is just like the highest mountain to climb, but you actually reach the peak. And I really like that. You yeah. know, I think that something with a continuation and a sense of normalcy that would be really hard for me because there's no, um, there is no extreme. And I, for me, it's like, you know, when I work out, I go climb Mount Whitney for 21 hours straight. Like that's like, you know, I live in that extreme. I love like a goal. I love a goal that seems impossible to reach Mm. and then getting there. So I think alternatively, my biggest fear is not being able to accomplish a goal. So I'm very fearful so far pretty much everything I've set out in my life to do, I've been able to accomplish. Yeah. At some point, I will fail at something and that's going to be like, oh, it's going to be like the But you'll thing. learn and grow so much I'll, from it. And I'd I think, love, yeah, it's, it's like I've got to be able to embrace that Look, you're constantly trying and striving and that's what any of us can really do is you can look back on your life and say, yeah, maybe I didn't reach it that time, but I tried. I went and I put my best foot forward and that's all we can do, you yeah. know? Um, given that, 
What advice would you have for anyone listening who wants to get into this business and particularly maybe follow a very similar career path in terms of physical production and what you've done? Uh, I, I My biggest piece of advice has always been start where you are. Meaning if you're listening in mm, Maryland. That's a bumper or sticker right like, there. <laughs> like, so, like if you're starting in Maryland, if you're a kid in Maryland going to school or an adult in Maryland, reach out to the Maryland Film Commission or alternatively the Virginia Film Commission or the uh, the DC Film Commission because there's there's so many regions, especially in the east southeastern part of the country where you throw a rock, you're in Atlanta. You know, so it's, I, I say start with where you're from. Don't think that by moving out to California means that you're going to open up all the doors for yourself because often it's easier to step into a door and that is pretty much in any walk of life. Uh, but even in small markets, there is a film commission near you, probably multiple film commissions near you. Reach out to them. Say, I will work for free. T- teach me. Help. Let me help somebody. Let me donate my time twice a week to um, to intern for a producer or go be a PA on a production coming into town or work on a commercial. Mm-hmm. I don't think that you need to make a short film and put your money into it. I definitely don't think that you need to go to college for it. I think that you need to find your tribe and that could be a tribe that you are is very temporary for a time. Take advantage of what's around you and don't be afraid of jumping in feet first as a production assistant. But generally, it might even be hard for you to get hired as a production assistant without experience. So that's where the internship works out. So I'd say ask somebody to teach you and tell them what you're willing to give them. Yeah. So final question. What's next? <laughs> what's next? <laughs> <laughs> so what are you up to next <laughs> um that's great i'll have to end with that that was great um but no the real question is what is the legacy that you hope to leave behind in this business i don't have a legacy desire i have a personal desire to work as hard as I possibly can and become as successful as I possibly can so I can make the decisions that greatly affect my family and my life's ability to live the rest of my life. And I feel the harder I work and the more successful I become, the more ability I have to potentially manipulate my life moving forward and making a change. I just want to service the people who hire me the best I possibly can and to have people go, she's fucking badass. Hmm. that I was a good person that busted her ass at all times and led by example. That's a great legacy to leave behind. Even if it's, I think your immediate circle of people, your community who knew you and they'll say, just touched as one person. Yeah. Somebody said to me recently, it really stuck with me that, you know, you should live a life worthy of a eulogy, not of a resume. That's great. That's really great. And that's been Is that on the podcast. No, actually, oh, I was uh, having a conversation I with just someone. Say that and be like, I don't like regurgitate it. <laughs> no, please, I don't know where it's from, but it's, it's, it's really good. it's really good. And I was like, Whoa! Will you was, text that to me. I will, really t- good. <laughs> I will text it to you, and it'll be in the show notes. Um, <laughs> but no, it's true. And I, I every time I start in the in the cycle of like not working and getting into the extremes of all of our thought patterns, I try to think on that and be like, Okay, but am I am I working towards in this moment? to the best of my ability to work towards my eulogy mm. and who I'm going to be in this world and the impact I can have in my work environment, in my personal environment and how I'm going to show up for myself and for others. 
So I think I need to check in more in order to do that. Yeah. Because I definitely don't check in on myself enough. I but think you're I, starting I to. lack of self-awareness probably at times. Hey, it's never too late. Baby steps. Baby steps. <laughs> Another great little, I'll end it here. I had a acting teacher. She's more of an acting coach early on. And one of the things that she would say Bonnie Gillespie, if you're listening, Ooh. she would say, it's all hard. You got to pick your hard. Mm, I like that. It's all hard. You pick your hard and then you stick with it as long as, as, long as you can. So. And don't be afraid of yourself either. I think um, I definitely have embraced who I am through this process. Yeah. And I think that it's applicable to pretty much any profession or anything you do. It's like embrace who you are and not be fearful of it. And, but, you know, self-awareness is, is okay too. Self-awareness. <laughs> be able to check in at the very least. <laughs> Amazing. Well, thank you so much thank for coming you. on the show. And thank you guys for listening. Another one for the books. Thank you so much for tuning in and making it till the end of this episode. If you're still with me and you're still listening, please subscribe. If you haven't already, rate, review, like, comment, tell a friend, tag a friend, tell your grandma, tell... I don't know, anyone you think would benefit from listening to the show. Thank you for tuning in week after week and doing this messy life thing with me as I stumble my way through and figure it all out. Hopefully I'll see you next week. Beijos.